And so this morning we're going to be in a couple of different places. Uh, We're going to be in Psalm 24, Psalm 50, and Genesis 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. And we'd love for that to be a gift from us to you if you're not familiar with how to use that. The large numbers are going to be chapters, the small numbers are verses. This morning, three different places, Psalm 24, Psalm 50, Genesis 2. And so when we're, when we're listening to the panel, and, and, and they're up there, and they're, and they're talking, and they're describing these things, I, I, there, there's something that likely resonates within you. And so you hear this idea of, of discipline, and, and discipline isn't, isn't just a really pleasant thing, and maybe you have memories of what it looked like or what it felt like to be in that situation and, and not to be able to spend money uh, like those around you. I remember when Valerie and I first went to the field and we were serving as missionaries, it was right before summertime and all these teams started coming over. And when you have teams in town, you eat out with them constantly. Now, the price of eating out was insanely expensive in Prague. And so I went to the guy who was my boss and just said, man, this is awesome. We love being with the teams, but like we can't hang in these areas. We're on like the budget McDonald's menu and you keep taking them to all these nice restaurants, which is awesome for them but not for us. And so just so you know, like, we want to be there. We just can't eat. And he said, well, okay. And so we started showing up to these restaurants, and what we would do before we went was we would make ham sandwiches. And so we would, man. So we'd buy, like, a loaf. We couldn't afford the pre-sliced bread, and so we're buying the bread that you have to go in and slice yourself, and we're buying, like, a chunk of meat that you have to also slice yourself, and a chunk of cheese that you have to... No, we bought the sliced stuff. No, and so... (laughs) We're not that poor. For real, we were, though. So we bought the cheese. You had to slice yourself. And so we go in there, and we're brown bagging it in these fancy restaurants with, with fine linen and china and all these things. Everybody's like, I'll take the steak, medium rare. I was like, I'll have the sandwich on dry bread. And so we're, we're there, and we're eating, and, and our boss pulls us aside, and he begins to scold me for this. What are you doing? This is just so embarrassing. I said, embarrassing for you. How? I'm the one eating a ham sandwich while they enjoy steak tartare, which I don't understand. It's raw meat with an egg on top of it. But that's neither here nor there. We recognize that there are situations in life that we're going to be put in uncomfortable places if we live within our means. A few weeks ago, Shaquille O'Neal had this podcast, and he was, he was talking about his family's philosophy of money. Maybe you know a name doesn't ring a bell, doesn't strike a chord in you. He was an actor in a movie, Steel. He was an actor in another movie named Kazam. He also played basketball, and he made a lot of money in that. Net worth somewhere around $400 million, and so he has money. He has lots of it. And so he was talking about how he leads his kids and how he leads them to understand money. And so he has a phrase that he uses with his kids all the time. We ain't rich. I'm rich. We ain't rich, I'm rich. He said, listen, I played basketball, I was a spokesman for Pepsi, I was in movies, some that did really poorly, but I still got paid. We ain't rich, I'm rich. And when we come into this understanding of stewardship, primarily we begin to think in terms of money, right? Now some of us look at our, our bank accounts, some of us look at our homes, and some of us look at the things that we own, our assets, and, and we might say of ourselves that, that we actually are wealthy, that we actually are rich. Now, on a global scale, everybody in this room is rich. So that's neither here nor there. But in terms of understanding ultimate wealth, 
The Christian has to come into this with the understanding that God is the owner of all things. So when we allow ourselves to head down this path of that God owns everything, that he owns the money in my Schwab account, he owns the money in my Alliance account, he owns the money in my 403B account with Guidestone, that God owns everything, well, I begin to come into this understanding of, of we ain't rich, he is rich. And so I move away from this mindset that sees me as the primary owner, that sees me, that sees us, that sees you and I together as stewards of God's good provision. Look at Psalm 24. Psalm 24, Psalm of David. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. The psalmist tells us plainly that everything you see, everything you encounter, and everyone in this room, and everyone all over the face of the earth, all billions of us, are in fact God's. He owns us, he owns all of our stuff, and verse 2 goes on to give us the reason why. Look at what he says, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So we come into this understanding of we have this sense of it is my stuff, it is mine, I have final say, I have dominion over all these things, and scripture plainly contradicts that assertion. And it tells us that God owns everything, and he owns everything because he created everything, and so he has ownership of our lives, and he has placed us as stewards over the things that he's entrusted to us. Flip over to Psalm 50. Psalm 50 is pretty fantastic it's pretty interesting because what we see is they had this errant understanding of who they were in contradiction or in comparison to their neighbors to the people that surrounded them now their neighbors the people that surrounded them the people that they found themselves in war and conflict with when it came to them to serve their god when it came to them to take care of their god they had to go in and they had to feed him because what they recognized over and again is their gods got quite hangry And when their gods were hangry, they found themselves losing battles, they found themselves losing wars, they found their their fields not uh, yielding an abundant crop, and so they had to keep their gods fed. And so the Israelites began to go in with this understanding, maybe our God is hangry. Maybe our God needs us to do something for him. Maybe our God needs us to go in there and make sure that he's well taken care of. This is what we begin to read in Psalm 50 and verses 10 and 11. Listen to what he says. He said, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves on the field is mine. Essentially, what we come to is this understanding is that God is communicating to them and letting them know he does not need them for nap time. He does not need them for mealtime. He allows them to serve him as steward. And we see this begins to change their understanding of this God. They come into this false uh, assumption that if they weren't serving him, that he'd go hungry. And if he went hungry, he would not take care of them. But look at what he goes on to say in verses 12 and 14. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Listen, sometimes if I'm spending time with, with my kids, they're hungry and they do not tell me, but, but I can see it in their attitude. I can see it in their behavior. And sometimes when I'm hungry and and I do not yet know it, my wife recognizes it because she can see it in my attitude. 
And she can see it in my behavior. And perhaps that's how my kids got this. But the understanding in there is that they believe that God's behavior is based on his satisfaction. But God tells them, listen, I don't need to tell you when I'm hungry. I own everything. I don't need to, you to come in here with the blood of bulls and goats. I don't need you to do these things for me. Verse 14 begins to give us the key. It says, offer to God a sacrifice of, everybody say, thanksgiving. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. See, God's not primarily interested in them offering him stuff. He wants to have their heart. We recognize how this fundamentally translates into a vast array of application in our lives. Imagine that you and I went to Dallas, and, and we go to Perry's, and, and we're looking for a nice steak, and we sit down, and there's a group of people with us, and, and we all, we order these insane appetizers, and we order steak, and dessert comes around, and we're just like, we're like, we're loosening our belts because we've eaten so well. And at the end of the meal, I noticed that Ken Money's sitting at the table right behind me. His chair's backed up to my table. Now, I've not invited Ken to Perry's, and he's not invited me, but we're going to talk about that later in an elders' meeting. <laughs> but the bill comes to the table, and I raise my hand and say, just put it all on one ticket. I got this. And once I do that, I reach my hand down and back, and I, I, I use this trick that I learned in the shopping mall in Prague, and I pull his wallet out of his back pocket, and I open it up, and I got money for money, you know? And so I pull out that, that credit card that says uh, Kenneth J. Maximus money, and I put it on the table, and I pay. And everybody says, thank you so much for being so generous. Thank you so much for being so amazing in it. And I sign, you know, Kenneth J. Maximus money on the, on the deal, and put it back in there, and slide his credit card back in his wallet. And I think, I have been generous. I have been I have been really kind to the people around me. But I've engaged in generosity with somebody else's finances. And I've pretended to be an owner of those finances so that I can engage in generosity, so that the people around me can see the things that I've done and they can say, this was so nice. He just spent all of this money on this meal to take care of us. This is what we engage in when we come to believe that we are the owners of the things God has given to us. This is what we engage in when we look at the, at the check we write to a church, the check we write to a nonprofit. This is what we engage in when we look at our time we give. This is what we engage in when we use our talents and serve and we say, praise me, haven't I done so well? We've claimed ownership of those things which are God's and not our own. And we've wanted to be praised for giving back to God what was his in the beginning. We are not owners of anything. We are merely stewards of the possessions that God has allowed us briefly to have a say over. Turn with me to Genesis 2.15. You see, when we recognize God's role in creation, it calls us to relate to him as a thankful worshiper instead of an entitled beneficiary. When we recognize that God owns everything, that God has created everything, it changes how we begin to relate to him. Genesis 2 and 15, you're going to notice there are essentially three words that we're going to focus in on. Put, keep, work. Put, 
keep work. Now God has created all things. He's created the garden. He's created all the animals. And in the middle of these things, this is what it tells us in chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So he put him there to work it and to keep it. Well, when we come to this understanding, it's fascinating that from this, we can build our entire theology and our understanding of what it looks like to be a steward. You know, everything in the garden is perfect. And everything remains perfect in the garden until Adam and Eve sin against God and then being removed from the garden. The the work, in essence, of keeping it and working it is removed from Adam. Creation is frustrated, work for him becomes difficult, and the keeping of the garden is entrusted to an angel who keeps him from ever going back to that place again. But what we recognize first is that Adam is put into the garden. Now this same word put here is rendered rest in Deuteronomy 3 and verse 20 when talking about entering into God's rest and entering into the promised land. So really the idea that we see that that Moses is conveying to us in the middle of these things is that God rested Adam in the garden. I think there's this false understanding in too many of our minds that primarily what Adam was engaged in was, 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 was a low-paying job of gardener. That he was kind of this early, uh, uh, oh goodness, I'm, I'm failing on the word, but he was essentially this gardener in there, landscape architect. You guys, it was right on the tip of the tongue. There we go. He was this early landscape architect. He's in there. He's got a minor in zoology, and so he's tending the animals. He's a veterinarian, but in the middle of this, he's not doing these things. You see, before God's commission ever for him to do anything, God rested him in the garden. Now, what did that require of Adam? It required primarily two things. A belief that he could trust God and a belief that God would provide for him. A belief that he could trust God and a belief that God would provide for him. He can trust God in the middle of the garden. God has placed him there in his rest. And this says for Adam that this God is here to look over you. The garden is not yours. You don't have full run of the garden to do whatever you want. You are here and you must trust God. And you are here and you can trust this God to provide. We find ourselves over the course of our lives recognizing that God has placed you right where you are at this time. For many of us, if we were to look at where we have ended up in life, not too many of us would have found ourselves to be living in Greenville, Texas, right here, right now, in this church, right here, right now. And so what is it requiring of us? It requires us in humility to say back to the Lord, I both trust you and I trust you for my provision. When we don't trust the Lord for his provision, we find ourselves hoarding and amassing more wealth to build more security so that we don't have to trust and rely on him. But when we trust and rely on the Lord, we find ourselves freely submitting ourselves to him and giving back to him those things that he has allowed us for a brief time to be stewards over. We must trust God's provision. We read in the Gospel of Matthew The Lord's provision for the flowers of the field. We read his provision for the birds of the air. We recognize that humanity matters much more than they. 
we can trust and we can rely on God's provision for ourselves. Amen? But in the middle of this, he's primarily given Adam from this place of being rested in the garden. He has called him to work and to keep. Now, this isn't drudgery. This isn't boring. This isn't, this isn't arduous. This isn't something that's, that's just painful for him. In fact, these same words of working to keep are used in Numbers 3, 7, and 8 to describe Israel's interaction with the Levites in the tabernacle. So there is a worshipful aspect to this. There's this worshipful thing that's connoted in the middle of this, and the same thing applies to us. Now listen, I don't know what a vast number of you do. One of the things that we can apply and we can know about any of the work and any of the things that we do over the course of our lives is all of our work should be in submission to the Lord. All of our work should be in submission to the Lord. This means how we use our time, how we use our talents, and how we use our treasures primarily is always in submission to the Lord. And as such, there is this possibility that when you leave this place, if you work a shift this afternoon, or when you leave this place tomorrow morning, if you clock in and you go in and you're sitting at your desk or you're working and doing whatever it is, that you can be a glad worshiper of God in the middle of this. If you find yourself in school, you find yourself at home school, you find yourself in college, you find yourself at home making sandwiches, whatever you find yourself doing, there's the possibility for you to engage in worship in the middle of that enterprise. This is what he called Adam to. He rested him in the garden. He allowed Adam to have dominion over the animals in the garden, to work it, and then he allowed him to serve as a steward in keeping provision in the garden. We begin to think about that in terms of kind of who we are and what that looks like. The things that God has allowed you here and now today to be a steward over. I want us to think about them in terms of a, of a good Baptist usage of three T's, our time, our talents, and our treasures. You can write money if, if three T's makes you nauseous. It does me sometimes. But think about it in terms of your time. Think about how many hours you have in, let's just look in a week. You have 168 hours in a week. If you get uh, what people would say is a good amount of sleep, which is certainly more than I get, you get eight hours of sleep a week. So you get 56 hours of sleep. And unless you're just amazing and can solve problems in your sleep, that's not productive time. So you have 112 hours of productive time a week. Okay, 112 hours. So let's look at that as, as it's just kind of 16 hours a day. Now, sadly, if you're going to look at that and, and look at screen time, the latest estimates say you get about eight hours of screen time a day. And let's just say for most of us, that is non-productive time. Can we establish that? It's non-productive time. I'm not talking about time at work and you're reading spreadsheets. That's productive, okay? I'm talking about like, oh, look at this. You got a fancy new dress. Oh, look at this. He got a kilt. I like, I don't want to exclude the men. When you think about your time, your time is a commodity that you cannot quantify. And you cannot quantify it because you don't know how much you have. I was thinking this week and just recalling a number of people that I've lost in my life. And I'm 42. And so I remember finishing the first grade and we moved uh, to another school. And we found out that one of the guys who had been in the first grade with me died that next year. 
His parents didn't realize he was a diabetic. There were some complications that came from that, and he died. When I was in uh, high school, a friend of mine was crossing the street, and at 17, he got hit by a car and died coming back across the street from the Cajun Heartland State Fair in Lafayette. Right after I graduated from high school, a girl was coming around a, a curve one night, and at 18 and a half, she missed the turn, and she died. I have a number of friends that died in college. I had a friend that died last year. I had a a, a friend of mine who has five kids who died this year from COVID. And during uh, this last year, I did funerals for people in their 90s and and funerals for people who are about to hit the 100 mark. None of them knew how long they had. None of us know how long. Time is this elusive, seemingly infinite thing that we're handed. But none of us know how quickly the sand is passing through our hands. Are you being a good steward of your time? Are you using your time to serve the Lord? Or are you using your time to delight in your own selfish pursuit? What would it look like? What would it look like for you to take a serious look at at giving a portion of this 168 hours in a week and using it as a good steward to serve the Lord? Maybe for some of you, what it would look like is serving as a Sunday school teacher. Maybe for some of you, what it would look like is you giving up a night of the week and joining a small group so other people can pour into your life and you can pour into the lives of others. Maybe for some of you, what it would look like is, is taking a day of vacation from your work. Taking a day of vacation and going and serving at Fish or going and serving at Rafa. Maybe for some of you, and this is just going to be crazy for most of us, maybe for some of us what it's going to look like is taking an extended vacation, 10 days, 12 days, and you're going to go to the furthest reaches of the world. You're going to go with Empower One. You're going to go with Patty to Honduras. You're going to go to Georgia. You're going to go to the Philippines. You're going to go on a mission trip. You're going to step away from work. You're going to turn the email off, and you're going to rend back to the Lord a sacrifice of your time. Now, this is difficult for too many of us because what we have done is we have borrowed against time we don't have. We have over-leveraged ourselves and worn ourselves out. So the thought of sacrificing our time and giving our time to somebody else really isn't something we're willing to do. So what I'll hear from some people is, I, I, I can't give my time and so I'll write a check. I'll pay money. Listen, you can't cordon off your life. The difficult thing is that we will find measures and opportunities and ways around truly sacrificing to the Lord. Some of us give money because that's easy for us to give because we've got tons of it. Some of us give our time because that's easy for us to give. We weren't using it well anyway. But what would it look like for you? What would it look like for you and your family to be good stewards of your time before the Lord, to invest in your family and the lives of those around you? Let's think about our talents. The amazing thing is, is that many of us have untapped resources in our talents, even as talentless as too many of you are. That'll get funnier later. But think about it in terms of this way. God has entrusted to you your life experiences. God allowed you to survive terrific hardship. 
God entrusted to your families. He's entrusted to you your difficulties. He has entrusted to you the sacrifices you've made. And in experiencing those things, he has created this network of experience in your life that is valuable. It is a valuable resource to be used in impactful ways in the lives of the people around you. You're talented. So what would it look like to use your interests Some of you are interested in news, some of you are interested in comedy, some of you are interested in hunting or dogs or whatever. What would it look like to take your hobbies, to take your interests, and to leverage those things for the gospel? If you like to build and tinker on stuff, man, go build and tinker on stuff in another part of the world. You like to do these things, you like to spend time with people in conversation, people don't like to spend time in conversation with you, but you like to talk to people, go to a nursing home and talk with folks. I went... And I visited a couple of nursing homes over the last two weeks. Those people are waiting for someone to come to talk to them. Slap a mask on and go have a conversation. I say a mask because it's required now. And for some of you, you don't smile nearly enough, so this is the sweetest gift you can give them. They don't know you're frowning on the inside. I'm so happy to be here. They don't know. It's behind this, right? What would it look like to use your talents? What are you good at? What do you enjoy? And how are you using those things for the glory of God? Do you like to sing? Do you like to play music? Do you like to dance as a Pentecostal church down the street? Do you like to... What, what things are you good at? What things has God given you the personality to delight in? God has not given you those things so that you'd sit back and look at them and say, these things are so enjoyable to me. And that's the end of it. God has given you these things, given you these passions, given you these delights, given you these interests for the possibility of you using them to further advance his kingdom. What would it look like for you to do that? What would it look like for you to be uncomfortable? What What would it look like for you to be vulnerable? What would it look like for you to be a faithful steward in using your talents for the expansion of God's kingdom? Now let's think about money. We can call it treasures if that makes you happier. When we think about money, generally in most organizations, the idea of the 80-20 rule comes into uh, into effect. That we see the bills paid by 20% of the people. 20% of the people pay uh, the the full 80 and and, and the the other 80% are just kind of kicking back. And, and, And this largely applies to every organization, statistically. But when we think about money, Money has this, this fascinating ability to have a hold on our hearts. Paul writing to first, in 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money. He doesn't say money, but he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Our money seems to be a clear indicator to us in an easy metric for us for where our hearts really are. If you don't keep track of your budget, you likely have no idea what your heart is really attached to. But if you keep track of your budget in any way, shape, or form, you can begin to see where your money's going. My money's going to Chick-fil-A, lots of it. It's the Lord's chicken, that's okay. That's almost like tithing. <laughs> then you eat of it, so it's kind of not. But if you pay for the meal and the person behind you, it's definitely like tithing. 
Where's your money going? Is it going to Starbucks? I know an awful lot of it's going to the federal government for the rest of us right now. But where is your money going? What does where your money is going say about your relationship and your submission to the Lord? As a church, we're trying to take a hard look at where our money is going. And so that's one of the reasons we sent the letter out to you all this week. That we evaluated that, that if we were to, to continue to pay down our note on the schedule that we have, what would that look like? How much money would go in interest over the next uh, 15 years if we were to do that? Next 18 years if we were to do that? What would it look like if we were to accelerate that timetable? If we were able to, each of us, take a hard look at what it might look like for us to sacrificially give that we might retire our church's debt at an accelerated pace. So instead of taking the next 15, 18 years, if we were to do that instead over the next three years. And when we begin to think about the value of that, the acceleration of that, that if we as a people could come together and give to that, that the $19,000 a month that we are currently using to pay down our note is $19,000 a month that we can instead use to be impactful in the kingdom. So I'm thinking about this. And I'm thinking about what it looks like for us as a church to be good stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to us. And I believe this is a worthy challenge to take on. I believe it is so helpful for each of us to ask the question of what it might look like for me and my family, for the Beasley household, to prayerfully consider before the Lord, God, what might it look like to be a better steward of our resources in seeking to pay down this debt so that we might glorify you more in the use of our finances. When you came in this morning, maybe you're stuck behind this financial wall. And so you're, you, the stories you heard in this panel are so familiar to you. You feel the, the pain and the difficulty, the weight of credit card debt. You feel auto debt. You feel student loan debt. And you think that the most important thing for you right now is getting out of that debt. But you've not yet stopped to consider that the most important thing for any of us in this room over the course of our lives is that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, the most important thing, the message that I would most desperately want you to hear this morning, it's not that you get on board with us and you help us to pay down our debt, but it is that each of us first give ourselves to God through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus did this amazing thing that he himself stepped into time. That he surrendered a flawless and a perfectly sinless life. And that doing those things, he took upon himself a debt you and I could never pay. He took upon himself our sin. And he took upon himself the penalty and the punishment for that sin upon a cross. And he did that, and he asks us to come to know him, to confess him as Savior and Lord, so that we could truly be free. The most significant debt that all of us have in our lives is a debt we could never hope to pay. But having seen that debt retired on the cross of Christ, 
God calls us to be faithful stewards to him in our lives. Amen. Would you pray with me? Got to recognize this morning that our hearts are idol factories. We idolize our time, our talents, our treasures. But God, your son Jesus comes to set us free, that we might be freed from being a slave to our time, that we might be freed from being a slave to our passions, God, that we might be freed from being a slave to finances. So God, I pray for those in this room who have not yet submitted themselves to your son Jesus. Outwardly, their lives are fine. They've got it all worked out, everything going in the right way. But inwardly, they recognize that they are far from you. So God, this morning, I pray that they would find you, that they would meet you, and that they would discover the peace that only you can give them. God, I pray for our brothers and sisters in this room people who are following you already. They feel far from you. God, that you would remind them of the restoration of the cross and that you would apply once again to their hearts the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're constantly drawing them to yourself. You're constantly reminding them of the sacrifice of the cross. And so, God, would you call them? Would you reestablish them? Would you secure them once again? God, I pray that you would just continue to work in our hearts. Help us to be found being worthy stewards, worshiping you in all that we have, in all that we say, and in all that we do. God, we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.